welcome to another episode of Author Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and we have a tough one today as I speak with Clay Bryant, the author of Solving the West Georgia Murder of Gwendolyn Moore, A Cry from the Well. On a sultry August morning in 1970, the battered body of a young woman was hoisted from a dry well just outside Hogansville, Georgia. Author and investigator Clay Bryant was there witnessing the macabre scene. He was 15 then, and he was tagging along with his father, Buddy Bryant, who was the Hogansville chief of police. The victim was Gwendolyn Moore. She had been in a violent marriage, and that was no secret, but her husband had connections to a political machine that held sway over the Troop County Sheriff's Office, who was overseeing the case. And to the dismay and bafflement of many, no charges were brought. That is, until Bryant followed his father's footsteps into law enforcement, and a voice cried out from that well three decades later. Lewis Clayton Bryant, or Clay, was born and raised in Troop County, Georgia, and began his career in law enforcement in 1973 as a radio operator with the Georgia State Patrol. In 1976, at the age of 21, he became the youngest trooper on the Georgia State Patrol. In 1980, he became police chief of Hogansville, Georgia, and stayed in that position for 12 years until resigning in 1992 and going into the private sector. He has been recognized as the most prolific cold case investigator in the United States for single-event homicides. Bryant resides in LaGrange, Georgia currently, and he serves as an investigator for the Georgia Public Defender Standards Council. His cases have been chronicled on 48-Hour Investigates, Bill Curtis's Cold Case Files, Discovery ID Murder Book, and a featured article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, as well as articles in many local and regional newspapers. Clay, thanks for joining me. Uh, you're more than welcome. I appreciate the opportunity to talk. All right, so let's start off talking about police work and law enforcement. So there are jobs that should not be, I believe, looked at as just a way to get a paycheck, such as being uh -huh. a nurse, a teacher, a doctor, soldier, pastor, and law enforcement. Um, there's a difference between just being a law enforcement officer and, like your father pointed out, a peace officer. Um, it's not just a, this is not just a job. It's something you should be called to do. And if someone cares enough to look, you can see who is called to the job and who isn't. And your dad was called to the job. Tell us a bit about oh. him. Well, my dad, you know, in my younger years, I was raised in just about Mayberry, if you could imagine that. And to me, my daddy was Andy Griffith. He was wise beyond his years, uh, was kind to everybody, but it was a time to be tough, and he was that too. Uh, I was blessed to be raised by him, and I was raised on the seat of a police car pretty much. <laughs> by the time, you know, I can first remember and start going around and doing things, and, uh, it was it was a great life. It was a great life, and uh, I owe the way that I think about things and the way that I've gone about my job to my daddy, I believe. And he used to, you used to be able to just drive around with him, like you said, you were raised on the seat of the police car, and he would give you these uh, pearls of wisdom as you were growing up. Oh, yeah. My, my dad had, he had a saying for everything in the world. I mean, and it was, you know, he was kind of a, I guess you'd say, uh, I always looked at him as a cross between Andy Griffith and Will Rogers, maybe, and 
maybe Chief Gillespie on the heat of the night, but he, uh, he had a long life experience and, uh, see his old sayings, they were just, you know, pearls of wisdom to me. I, it was just, it was such a neat, a neat upbringing that I had, you know, I was so fortunate. And one of the things I like that you said about your dad was that he gave everybody the time of day, even if it was a town drunk at 7 a.m. on Sunday morning. Oh, absolutely. I, I can't tell you how many times we'd be awakened to stumbling up into the porch and knocking on the door. Folks were going to try and explain what happened and why it happened and this and that. And my dad, he always had his doors always open. And that's what made him, that's what made him, you know, what he was, that's why people loved him so. He was he was always open to anybody and anything. It didn't matter, if, like I said, if you were the president of the bank or bless your heart, old town drunk. He had time for you. I, I, he he would tell you, you know, he said, son, you need to understand something. I need to know things. And he said, and I love everybody on it, that, in the uh, First Baptist Church. He said, but there's a lot of things that the folks sitting on the pew at the church can't tell me. And he said, uh, I need to be have a rapport and be able to communicate with everybody at any level. And he could. He was a master of it. Yeah, and one of the things he said that the air conditioning was probably one of the worst things that ever happened to policing. In the oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> I like that absolutely. Line. My, one time, he would ride with me at once I got grown, and uh, he was friends with Colonel Hardison with the State Patrol, and he, Colonel Hardison would allow, you know, select people to sign a waiver to ride with the troopers. And my dad would ride with me every chance. Three out of five days a week, my dad would ride with me at night, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were riding along one time, and he says, you know, says, uh, of course, we were in a nice air-conditioned patrol car. He said, the ruin of ruination is the word he used. The ruination of, of, of the policing was the day they put an air conditioner on a patrol car. I looked at him and I said, what in the world are you talking about, Dad? He said, think about it, son. He said, that day it became more comfortable to isolate yourself from the public that you need to be meeting and seeing and serving everything. You know, as simplistic as it sounds, he was absolutely right, you know. It was easier to sit in that car and not get out and go in the store and talk to somebody that could tell you something or what's going on in the community and those things. You sat in the car and you were cool and listen to the radio and watch the world go by in front of you instead of being part of it. Yeah. Made a lot of sense. He also said one time to me that, uh, you know, he said, son, I'm just going to tell you the thing that ruined in this country. He says, when people quit cooking on a wood stove, <laughs> same thing. I looked at him. I said, what are you talking about, Dad? He said, well, he said, when I was a kid, Mama cooked on a wood stove. That uh, we had a responsibility. Every morning, that wood box better be full with wood for her to make those biscuits. And it better be kindling split there. And if it wasn't, something really bad was going to happen when Daddy got home from the cotton mill. And uh, he said, back then, everybody had to a job to do that supported the family, even even the youngest of children. They had they had a responsibility and a duty. And 
they fulfilled, fulfilled it and everything was good. And if you didn't, there were consequences and they were generally fairly harsh and quick and coming. And he said, we've gotten away from that. He said, you know, as simple as it sounds, that wood stove made a lot of good people. And it's true. Hmm. And he also was the one that inspired you to get into policing. And Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he was my hero, man. And you did decide, decide rather, to try your hand at something else for a while, but it was and is your calling, and you found your way back to it. Absolutely. I was, I was fortunate enough that uh, the district attorney had a opening for an investigator, and I contacted him, and he said he'd love to have me, and that's what started uh, opening the door for me to be able to do the things that I've done, and I... For that, I thank Pete Scandalakis. And he's now the uh, head of the prosecuting attorney's council of Georgia. And uh, it, was, it wasn't for him. We would never have been able to do the things that we've done. I appreciate it. Absolutely. So we do have a police officer who was not a noble character. But there's a timeline of events dating across the state line in Alabama. We're going to get to the sheriff in a second here. Um, in Alabama, those st- across the state line that takes us to Sheriff Bailey. And it's a very interesting timeline to me. To think events from decades prior can have an effect on a person's life and definitely an effect on those around her, not only at that time, uh, but for so long past. Can you tell us a bit about this group of people, this mob in Phoenix City, Alabama, and how they found their way to troop counting and then also about Sheriff Bailey a little bit? Well, there was the things that happened in Phoenix City, Alabama, well documented. Uh, they were chronicled in the, all the magazines and news papers of the day. Uh, Phoenix City was pretty much sin city. Uh, it was a, right across the Chattahoochee River from Columbus, Georgia, where Fort Benning was. And during the 40s and the 50s, it was run by a group of folks that later on became uh, known as part of a loosely knit group of criminals called the Dixie Mafia. Uh, And a couple of folks that were involved in that actually came from up in this area and they, uh, some of the Shepherd family and uh, they went to Phoenix City, uh, one in particular, Hoyt Shepherd, brother Snoop, and uh, they went to Phoenix City, got involved, and they ran some of the illegal nightclubs, and they dealt in prostitution and gambling and liquor and all the things that you'd find close to an army base that, and the tentacles that they had run, ran deep, I mean, they actually, uh, Albert Patterson was a war hero and an attorney. Uh, in World War II, he came home and he saw what was going on in Phoenix City. He actually uh, defended uh, Hoyt Shepard in a murder case one time, uh, right after he got back from the war. Mm-hmm. But he was so appalled at what all he saw going on, he ran for uh, attorney general of the state of Alabama under the platform that I will clean up Phoenix City, Alabama. 
and uh, the sheriff down there, uh, of course, the folks that ran uh, all those gambling casinos and whatnot down there, they didn't want any part of that. And the sheriff uh, was named Ralph Matthews. And he, at that time, had a deputy sheriff that after Patterson was elected on his platform, came out of his office one afternoon and the chief deputy shot and killed him. Yeah. And that's when they declared they declared martial law in Phoenix City. Uh, they actually indicted uh, the attorney general of Phoenix City as being part of the, of the thing. He never stood trial because they said he was insane. Uh, but it was a it was a heck of a thing. And then because of the family ties with the folks in Phoenix City and the folks up here, some of the uh, they learned some lessons from what happened in Phoenix City. And they, uh, folks up here took hold of basically the political structure. And uh, that's where they got their influence from. They put themselves in position where they ran a Troop County uh, executive, Dem Democratic Executive Committee, which uh, back in that day, everybody was a Democrat. Mm -hmm. Everybody. And uh, so if the only way you got elected to anything is you were their candidate. And they ran the court system and the justice system and you didn't want to have, you know, problems with your business and that kind of thing. You had to follow kind of in line, and that's what happened. That's exactly what happened. And Sheriff Bailey and, was a big part of that machine. Oh, absolutely. You know, the first off, the, when you have keys to the jailhouse and you can tell who gets investigated and who can't, you're a very, very valuable person if you want to sell, if you want to sell yourself. And Sheriff Bailey had no problem doing that. Oh. Uh, if uh, you were in the liquor business and you had the good graces of the sheriff, hey, if you were in the bonding business and had the good graces of the sheriff, you know, and then if you owned from state court judge all the way to the uh, front door of the county jail, you could pretty much uh, do anything you wanted to. And because of the political influence that they garnered, the folks that could do this, heck, they could place a phone call and the governor picked the phone up, not the secretary. I mean, you know, very few people have that kind of access, but some folks in LaGrange, they did. And uh, they were very, very powerful people. Yeah, and that's a, scary, that's a scary thing to think about. So few people have that kind of control in a county and have that kind of control to get to the state house to talk about oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, but you know, I, I, you got to say, too, we're, we're talking about a time that's 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. things, things and people change. And uh, I can honestly say that I don't I honestly do not believe that today here in our community it is anything like it was back. Uh, I, and I, I, I totally understand this, too, that there are some some people that when they read my book and they're going to say, man, he's kind of rough on my family. Uh, you know, and I, I don't mean to be, but if in telling this story, if you don't tell the whole story, you yep. never could understand what, you know, why? I mean, that's why history is so important to know the bad and the good to get to the story of why we got to where we're at and why it's important that's, to learn from it. That, that's right. And that's the one thing I want anybody to understand. 
I don't have an ax to grind with anybody of, of, in the history of all this mess. It's just, it was what it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, I got some folks that I, I'm, I really am concerned that they'll, you know, their use for me might dwindle because of the story. But uh, I hope it doesn't. But, you know, it's the truth. And it is what it is. And I tried to be fair about the truth and, and, and distribute it. You know, everybody had their axes to bear, even me and my family, you know. Yeah. So, go. Well, that's true. I mean, it, you know, family history is such a big thing right now. Uh, if you go back far enough in your family history, sometimes not even that far, you're going to find characters in your own family that you're not that proud to be related to. So well, everybody, everybody has skeletons in their family closet. Uh, well, you got to decide who yourself who you want to be. So it's well, not, I, I, yeah. I, I totally agree. Now, and I will say this to some of these folks' credit. Now, some folks were they actually drug, drug their children and stuff into lives of crime. Yeah. And then some people did all they could to insulate the kids and the rest of their family from those. And, and some of those were these people that you know that I'm talking about. And as bad as some of the things I thought they did were, at least they, you know, they tried to keep it away from their family and their loved ones. And I go, you know, I got to give them credit for that. Yeah. Uh, you know. It's a hindsight kind of thing too, sometimes. And we're going to get into oh, that a little bit too. Absolutely. Um, so from central West Georgia, let's go to the 1920s and 30s. Raven County, Boggs Mountain in North Georgia, to the Moore family. And this is the family of, I guess we could say, the main villain in the tale. It's where he would come from. Uh, the family had a history of violence itself, did it not? Actually, you know, the North Georgia mountains and, and the foothills of the Appalachians, they are, it, back in that time, it was a tough life. These people mm-hmm. were poor as dirt, didn't have anything. And they were and they were hard people, and some of them more so than others. Some of them were, you, know, you could say anything, for a better word, ruthless. Uh, the main character, one of the main characters in my book, his grandfather, uh, according to members of the family that I that I'd spoken with, killed, beat his wife to death. The grandmother and uh, burned her on a pyre in the 30s in uh, Raven County. Let's go on to that for a second because it's this is, uh, I believe it's the father, right, of Marshallus in the yard with his sister. And it, would, it would actually have been their grandfather. Okay, the grandfather, the grandfather who murdered or was in the yard with the sister. No. I, I'm missing. I'm missing what you're asking, brother. Because in the book, it starts off when they're in the mountains, and there are two kids in the front yard who are hearing their mother be beaten, and the mother runs out of the house, and a man comes out and says, "Um, go down the street to your grandfather's because I'm going to get your ma." Who were those two kids in the front yard? Uh, that would have been Marshall's sister and uh, her older brother, I believe. Oh, okay, I got you. So the two kids witness their mother getting beaten, and they see her. The last time they see her, she's running for her life up the mountain, and they see the father go after her. That's right, and she never came home. And 
later on they found uh, an ash pile up there where I guess you would say fire had been made and there was human remains in it. And of course, that time wasn't any such thing as DNA or whatnot, but it was pretty clear what had happened. And that also, she said that that night, you know, you could actually see up on the side of the mountain the glow of a fire, but they had no idea what it was until years later. So they see this fire and they didn't know, but that was their mother, they believe. I mean, that's. That was, that's correct. Jesus. That's correct. Now, it's, uh, uh, and, and then that started, that conduct started a legacy brutality all the way down through the family until, you know, the events that happened in the book. And hopefully that legacy has been broken. No. Yeah, I hope so. You it didn't seem like everybody in the Moore family was violent, though. Um, no, the, 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 the baby sister, Miss Rose, and her younger brother, I can't remember his name. It's in the book. I don't know if I even got him. But they live very normal and happy lives. At one time, she even worked uh, as a clerical worker for the Georgia State Patrol. But uh, the stories that she would tell about the brutality in the family and what all happened, mm. some of it was just absolutely heartbreaking. I mean, you know. Jeez. So Marshall's going to leave North Georgia. Um, but let's leave the Moore family for a second and let's leave Marshall for a second. And let's talk about Gwendolyn's family. Um, tell me about Gwendolyn's family. Uh, who, who were they? And how did, how did Gwendolyn grow up in contrast to um, Marshall Moore, who would become her husband? Gwendolyn uh, was raised absolutely... 180 degree half away from where Marshall Moore came from. Gwendolyn was raised on the west side of Atlanta. She had, uh, I can't remember, I don't even remember the number of siblings that she had, but not. Uh, Miss uh, Pat Terry was her sister, and most of this information came from Miss Pat. And uh, her daddy was named Rassie Lee McDaniel, and he worked for the railroad, uh, and family was. They were just hardworking, good people, uh, you know, church-going folks. Just, you know, that during that time in, in the uh, 50s, it was, you know, it was hard. But uh, Dad got hurt on the, uh, at his job, and uh, he never did really recover from it. And uh, during that time, uh, Marshall came south. And uh, he was staying with some other people, another family in the neighborhood there in the west end of Atlanta. And that's how she and he met. And uh, she never had been exposed to anything Marshall Moore was. And uh, you know how that old thing goes? You always have attraction to things that might not be the best in the world for you. Mm. That was certainly the case for her. Man, her family is, when you write about them, it just, they have this whole, like, work ethic that, like you said, is the antithesis of everything that seems to have been instilled in Marshall, and, but also this whole, like, church-like, almost, upbringing of looking for good yeah. and things of this nature, but it seems like you just needed to have a little bit of edge to you that well, they didn't have. The thing about 
the upbringing that she had, she, if you thought about it from this perspective, she was a perfect victim mm. for Marshall. I mean, you know, she was, she's 15 years old when they meet. They, she's looking for the good in everybody and everything. Yeah. She don't know a lot about his history other than he moved in with the neighbors, you know. And uh, immediately after uh, they marry, Marshall starts trying to isolate her from her family and uh, people that care about her. And uh, that goes on throughout her life. And uh, to be quite honest, he was not in a situation where he wanted anything, anybody to know anything about the kind of man that he was and what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, I understand. Here's the thing. I understand pri- people wanting to be private in privacy, even though people go and post everything about their lives on Facebook and everything nowadays, which, and then they complain about people spying on them. We don't put everything on Facebook. But that's neither here nor there. But... um. Privacy is one thing. Taking someone and hiding them away from the world, that's a big red flag to me. Oh, and I'm about I, to go off on a whole tirade in a minute about this, but how long after the marriage did it take before things turned sour? And I'm not just talking uh, about hiding her away. I'm talking about the beating starting. Oh, quickly. That, I mean, uh, they moved, actually had moved in, I believe, in to an apartment that was part of uh, Rassie Lee and uh, his wife's house. And uh, he wouldn't even let her go upstairs because he, he didn't want to go upstairs with those bruises showing. But by then, Rassie Lee had gotten uh, infirm because of his injuries. And uh, it took him, out, if I'm not mistaken, about a year to succumb to him. And uh, she was basically a prisoner in their own home. And as quick as he died and uh, that house kind of broke up, they he went to, I think it was on Jodacora. He started in uh, Allen County, Georgia, and then they moved back to DeKalb and, uh, on Jodico Road. And, and, and there's some uh, excerpts in the book that come from, describe some outlandish brutality there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, you know, you if you, when you read this book, it is absolutely, and, and sometimes even it's a little hard to read to understand yeah. how anybody could be this cruel to somebody. I mean, when you're talking about him living in the house, there's there's an accident that is had her father has, and she he's basically upstairs, uh, getting ready to die, and exactly. he doesn't want her to go upstairs to even you know have her last moments with her father. And she knows that if even if she does go upstairs, what she tries to do to see her father, he beats her for doing that. Absolutely. That's how much control he wants to have over her. And even her family's like, well, that's their business. It, it, it's mind-blowing uh, to it, me it, that it, that kind of mentality existed and still does exist in some places. It, well, it does. It does. Uh, now, I will say this. You know, times have changed greatly. Things like this is now why you have, you know, Domestic Violence Act and things that for protections. But there's some folks that still in, it's in the news every day. You know, the human animal can be a very cruel thing. And in this case, I. In heck. 30 years, 35 years, how long it's been, 
police work, 35, 40 years of police work. I've never in my life seen anybody that was as cruel as he was during this time period. Now, what happened later in his life, I can't explain, but I can tell you this. So, during the time he was married to Gwendolyn Moore, that, there's no explaining just how brutal a life that woman lived. If you know what I know, it's hard to even understand how anybody could treat anybody beyond me. He was a, had to have complete control over her in every aspect of her life. Yeah. And, and he did. And it's not just Gwendolyn. Gwendolyn and Marshall have children. And right. he tries to have control over them. Wouldn't even like it if they left the yard, everybody. And they would get beatings from Marshall, too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, he spared no quarter now with uh, the way he treated his family. And, uh, you know, as quick as the children got old enough to get gone, uh, a couple of them did. Now, after later on, after he remarried, which was rather quickly. Oh, yeah. Time, we're going to talk about her in a, a little bit here. Okay. <laughs> oh, you can keep going. I mean, it's insane how it this goes together. It, it, it's just, uh, it's hard to believe that, you know, and the only reason he that didn't continue is because the person that he married was tied to some folks that he didn't want to do that. Yeah, I uh, mean, I, I, well, I'll I'll leave I'll leave that for a second from now. And also, I'm trying I'm trying to keep uh, it from where I ha don't have an e on the end of the podcast, but I, I might put one on there anyway because you know Marshall, if you want because you talked to Alan Moore, who's their son. And right. he he gets beat so bad one time with a chain because he's trying to cover for something that his brother did with the breaking a blinker on a car. That's correct. He gets beat so bad after the first hit with a chain on the back, he wakes up and he's so bloody he's stuck to the sheets. That's exactly what he told me. He wakes up, can't move because of that. His mother tries to help him, Gwendolyn, by cleaning it up. His father comes in, upset that she's quote-unquote, babying him, basically. If he says something along the lines of, if I wanted them babied, I would do it. And then he proceeds to beat her, rip her clothes off, because maybe he likes seeing bruises pop up. He's not sexually assaulting her, we don't think, but he likes to see. we think he likes to see bruises pop up as he beats her. And he's doing this in front of Alan after Alan's already had a beating. This oh, is the absolutely. kind of person we're talking about. He, he, he was as cold-blooded as any person I've ever seen, and and to the very people that he should have been the kindest to. There's no logic in this. But, of course, you know, people are products of what they've lived and experienced. And that was a life that he experienced at the hands of his father. Him and his father actually one time were caught burglarizing, mm -hmm. committing a burglary together. And father went to prison and he went to reform school. Yeah, I, 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 know, I know we keep saying that, but I keep going back to the fact that there were other members of his family that did not do that. That Well, well now I will say this. Uh, his, he had a brother that had moved to LaGrange, and uh, his wife was named Seen, and she divorced that brother. And she's actually the one that took Alan in when Alan ran from home. 
Uh-huh. And uh, she would tell you about the situation. And uh, uh, it's just, there were the only two people in the, in the family that were, uh, I, and I think because they were younger and their mother was able to get away from their father. <laughs> Matter of fact, uh, the Ms. Rose told me that, uh, and that was Alan's baby, I mean, Marshall's baby sister, that her mother had told her, whatever you do when I die, do not bury me next to that. You know, uh, but her and her younger brother, who did very well, turned out to be a very nice guy. They were kind of younger when uh, their mother divorced uh, Marshall's dad, and they were raised less under the influence of Okay, I the more legacy, book, yeah. The more legacy, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and the, I mean, the mother got. You're right. The mother did divorce and got away, and that's one reason she, you know, she said she. And that's that, that that's the biggest reason for the change, I think, in in some of the family members. They they got away from that violent temperament of Marshall that he'd gotten from three generations past. You know. Yeah. You know and. So one of the things that's, and I understand we've even said it before, uh, you know, it was a different time, but still, uh, one of the things that stood out to me was how many people knew it was going on. Neighbors, police who were out of jurisdiction, and they, they could not, you know, perform an arrest. I mean, you're dead. We know it drove him nuts, drove him crazy. Like, not literally nuts, but it aggravated him. And so oh, Absolutely. People, and nothing was done. And we're going to talk about your dad, you know, with because you know, your dad knew about this before, you know, what happened to Gwendolyn happened. I'm sure. Oh, I, I, there were times when my dad and I be driving down the road, he'd see Marshall Moore, and he, I, I heard him make the statement, he ought to be on death row in Tattanawa County. I mean, he knew. Everybody seemed to know. Yeah, now the folks in the neighborhood there, it's a, it's it's rural, you know, but the houses are close. Uh, and everybody knew and saw this. I've, I've talked to people that the little store down the road, she'd come, she'd come in the store and she'd be wearing sunglasses in the rain, you know, keep, keep her eyes from showing that she'd been beaten. And, uh, swollen so shut that it, it was only slits for her to see through, right? I'm sorry. You said in the book that her eyes were swollen so shut people would see her sometimes that she only had slits to see out of. Oh, Absolutely. That's absolutely the truth. And uh, as a matter of fact, the night of her death, when Alan saw her, he said her eyes were swollen shut. Yeah. I mean, the co- you can see it in the, co- the picture you have of her in the coffin. It, it, it's such a, I said, it's unfathomable. To, people see her missing hair, too. And her oh, feet, feet broken because he he didn't want her going anywhere. He literally stomped a child out of her. Yes, that, in yes. about 1962. It didn't even he didn't come to the funeral. Didn't he? It, her, uh, her brother, one of her brothers, hand dug the child's grave and buried in the Sweetwater Cemetery in Paulding County in West Georgia. And it's hard if you have a 
if you have children, it's heartbreaking to read, and it's, it's, it makes you mad. That's why, you know, when you asked me, you know, how it was coming reading the book last week, I told you I was pissed off. <laughs> it pissed me off. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to have that effect on people when they read the book. But it's, It is. It's yeah. hard to read. It's, yeah. it's, hard, it's literally hard to read. But, you know, it, it's a story that needs to be told. Absolutely, it does. Um, but when we're talking about all these things that were in the book and these people who witnessed um, these things that happened to Gwendolyn, you've actually talked with some of these people who witnessed the aftermath of Marshall's wrath. What was it like talking with them after the fact? Oh, I mean, it, it's, uh, again, we're in the sixties and uh, up to 70 and people that in the neighborhood that saw what was going on because she didn't she didn't get out much. She'd walk down the street to the little store that's a quarter of a mile down the road. That's about it. The only other outlets anybody in the family had pretty much was going to school. They were pretty much prisoners in that house. Now, uh, and everybody saw him and how he acted and what he did and the neighbors around him weren't, they weren't going to say anything because they basically were scared of it. You know? Oh, uh, but, you know, it is, uh, it was just a horrible situation. And, and the things that is, is burned in their mind, I'm going to get to something that's burned in their mind, but I don't think we've talked about this yet. I think we need to understand how Marshall is involved with the machine in Troop County. Okay. Marshall, once he came here, he ran a little, uh, he worked for Brown Transport. And they had a little freight depot here, and they, they hauled a lot of carpet and so forth off of, at that time, it was Callaway Mills, and uh, later to become Millican. And uh, he was, you know, he was a tough guy. And he kind of started running around with the likes of Robert Shepard, who was, you know, an offshoot of the Shepard family out of Phoenix City. And they uh, got tied up with some folks who were in the loan business, and they you know, had use for a a tough guy, and he was that for them. And then there came a time when there was this uh, a lot of carpet was made in Lagrange, Georgia, and a lot of it was shipping through the little terminal that Marshall that Marshall ran. And I had members of his family, one of his children in particular, tell me, he said, "Yeah, Daddy, folks would." come to the house, they'd be carpet on the truck, and these folks would come to the house, and they'd unload the truck, you know. Most freight places don't do that, you know. Yeah. You don't unload the truck at the house. And uh, they'd load it onto somebody else's truck and uh, come to find out uh, that became a, a very big deal of product theft and Back to the same thing. It all kind of got swept under the rug when it finally came to came to light. So Marshall had some connections in several different ways with the local underworld, and the local underworld controlled the political power. That's how that came to be. Wow. So let's get back to people who've witnessed things, and so Ronnie Turner. He's mm-hmm. he's living next door. That's Along right. with Alan Moore, who's Gwendolyn's son, their testimony they, it stays with you when you 
read about them talk about that August night in 1970. Um, I, I mean, Ronnie Turner's statement, burn, you know, and these are folks that heck, I was raised. Yeah. You know, I never will forget what Ronnie had to say. You know, after he and I talked and we talked about the, this situation, you know, and we're talking about something that happened 30 years ago over 30 years ago. And I asked him and, and he described brutality of what he saw and that night. And I said, Ronnie, how in the world you saw that? Cause he described to a T her clothes and her being torn off of her and a beating she took. And I asked him, I said, how can you, you, you you're so vivid in your in your memory. How can you remember that? You saw it one time 30 years ago. He said, no, Chief. I've seen it nearly every day for 30 years. Hmm. That's a powerful statement. Yeah. It's something you don't forget because of what is about to happen. No. And no. One twist for me. Up. Go ahead. Sorry. And, you know, next day she's. Yeah. In a dry well, dead, you know. Absolutely, and when it's and how I mean, it's how long it takes. We're gonna get there in a second, but one twist for me, and I will divulge this, is when he was going, he decides he's gonna do something, get Gwendolyn help, but who stops him? But Priscilla, who's gonna become Marshall's second wife. That's correct, and uh, Priscilla Shepherd. She was the daughter of Robert Shepherd. Of course, she's going to have some protection, though. But. Oh, ab, ab, that's why she didn't end up like Wendell in the early days of their marriage. Uh, it's uh, if you follow, you know, all you got to do is follow the follow the dots, and you kind of understand what was going on and what was happening. Uh, the night that Ronnie saw this happening through the window of the house, horrific meeting. It was it. He he get calls his mother the front porch and she's look at it and she's oh my god i'm gonna call the law and according to ronnie he said priscilla steps in no don't do that miss chaucey it's uh that's their business it's not ours and she kept her from calling the police and four months later they're married well, i don't that. see how in the world anybody could have witnessed what marshall was to sunk to anybody and gotten involved with him, but I guess, you know, different strokes for different folks, I guess. That, it blows, it, it does, it, it blows my mind. I don't understand it either. I, there is no understanding it, I don't think, on this side of eternity, no understanding it. I don't know if I do want to understand it, to be honest with you. Absolutely, absolutely. So Ronnie Turner does witness this beating. It's beyond horrific. He le oh. She actually does leave Try to get up to leave, and she does. She pulls on yellow shorts, a blouse, and she goes to safety. So tell me, where does she run? And can you tell us about the last time Alan sees his mother? Heartbreaking as it is, only you got uh, Miss Chaucey Turner and Ronnie and his brother. They live on, you're facing the houses on the right side. Then there's the Moore house on the left side of Mr. Junior Turner. And uh, there were times when he would 
beat on her and she would just escape from him. And they would hide her, literally hide her under the crawl space of their house. You know, we're talking about old homes built on piers and uh, underpin. It was mm-hmm. basically a dungeon. He wanted to think of it in that, that form. And uh, the night after this beating, uh, Marshall had the kids out trying to find her because he didn't want her to be found in the shape she was in by anybody else. Alan knew that she'd been hid, had been being hid under the house over there. He went under there and she was propped up against an old space heater. And his words are lips were bloody, blood all over her face, and hair was pulled out, and her eyes were swollen shut. And he said uh, that he uh, talked to her and she said, Look, you just go back, just don't tell him where I am, he'll kill me said, uh, I'm going to try to get out of here and go get some help. And uh, it was uh, one of the hardest things I ever saw. This grown man that experienced so much. He'd been in the Navy, had a career, done the things that he's done. He's sitting there crying about this. I never will forget when I talked to him the first time. He said, you know, and he's crying. He said, if I just took her by the hand and Got her out from under there and just ran toward town and went to the police station. My mom would still be alive. That that man carried that guilt, misplaced guilt, up till now. You know, I can't even imagine, you know, having to live with it. It's, uh, you know, when it comes to these old cases, you know, a lot of folks say, man, whatever you do, you can't, you don't get involved, you know, emotionally with the case. Well, I can tell you this, you don't get involved with cases like this. And uh, use the emotion that gives you the drive to investigate and do the right thing. You won't ever solve any. Because every excuse is already in the world, already been thrown at it to let it just lay dormant. And uh, I just, there's no way in God on earth I could do that. You can't. Anyway. And you, you were involved with this case from the beginning because, believe it or not, we're actually just now at the beginning of the book. Because right. you were you were with your dad, because even though he wasn't involved with the sheriff's department, this is under the Troop County Sheriff's Department's jurisdiction. But your dad had a lot of schooling when it came to law enforcement, and oh, that, he was called absolutely. in to take photographs. And that, you were with sure. him. We were in the police department that day, and uh, it was one more morning, I guess probably ten o'clock in the morning, thereabout. And I was in the, in the office with my dad. Gets a phone call and he picks up the old Polaroid camera, you know, and uh, that's how advanced we were. And uh, he said, "Come on, right here, Clay." He said, "You want to ride out, uh, Junior Turner? They found a lady in a well out there. Did they want me to go take some pictures for?" Her. And I jumped in the police car seat, just you know, right where I wanted to be. I thought, and uh, we go out, uh, literally. A stone's throw from the city limits outside of town. And uh, there's a, and while we were on the way out there, my dad had called. He'd gotten a record to come out there to help recover in the, in the body recovery. And never will forget. Deputy Sheriff went out and 
cable led him down into the well. And you could see in the well, the lady looked like she was kind of in a fetal position, but like she was praying, you know, on her knee. He put a strap around her. Uh, they raised her up out of the well. She was spinning around on that cable. It was one of the most heartbreaking things I ever saw. On the other side of the well, there stands all the more kids. Oh, my God. And uh, it, the strangest thing is, I don't remember seeing Marshall. But I'm, sure, I'm sure he probably was. I looked over there because, you know, me and Alan, we're the same age. He's a year younger than me. But I knew it. And school and whatnot. It's just amazing that, you know, you got two kids that are raised in the same town and under the, you know, but it's an absolute world apart from where you came from. It's just, I know, I still see her. I, I old orange record. And it, it was over that pit spinning around that cable. I'll never forget it. And I, when 30 years later, just went to work in the DA's office, you know, mm. and uh, get a call from the sheriff's office. And say, hey, we're looking for a case of a young lady calling. She found a death certificate. Says it's a homicide, and we don't even have a record of it. And they said, do you remember it, Clay? It was up there around where you live, up, up in Hogan. I didn't really remember it. I was standing there, and the lady came out of the well. And crazy, the, the thing that, and it, it doesn't haunt me, but there's some things I just can't explain. And they sent me a copy of the death certificate. A lady, uh, it would have been uh, Gwendolyn's great niece. Her name was Leslie Ianuzzi. She had found she was going through her grandmother. Her and her mother were going through her grandmother, and her grandmother would have been Gwendolyn's sister. Going through her affection, she found her death certificate. And she wanted to call the sheriff because so she never even knew she had an Aunt Wendell. Great Aunt Wendell. And uh, she uh, called the sheriff's office over there, and there was no record of anything. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, fax me the death certificate. I get the death certificate, and I just start looking at, you know, the facts on the certificate. And uh, didn't pay a lot of attention to the tagline on top that gives a date and a time and you know and uh, I talked with the investigator, her name was Larry Arrington, he said well I'm going to put you in touch with her and let see if you can help her find out something about this and that's how the whole thing got started but now when I looked closer at the death certificate that you sent on the top it was faxed to me on October the 24th 2002 that was my daddy's birthday. Hmm. Then forward in this case, I always felt like there was a guiding hand on me find justice for that one. And I think for as much as we could, we did. Absolutely. And the story for how that happened, so much more in the book, how justice was found, a murder, murder solved. This, um, you can find out the whole story. Um, beginning July 
26th. And, you know, you can meet Clay in person at Pretty Good Books in LaGrange, Georgia, on Saturday, August 7th at 1 p.m. at Horton's Books in Carrollton the next Saturday, August 14th at 1 p.m. And you're going to be at the Hummingbird Festival in Hogansville on both October 16th and 17th. Um, but, Clay, we've said the phrase already, because you said Priscilla said it in the book, and you said it today on the podcast, um, the phrase, that's their business. Um, and it was said as Gwendolyn was being beaten. Um, you know, not during an argument, and people argue, I get that. But it was said while she was being beaten. And, you know, one time it was followed up with, she'll be all right. As a peace officer, is there something you want to say to people who have the attitude of, that's their business, and is there anything we can do to help people in that situation? Well, again, we were talking about 30 years ago before the Domestic Violence Act, things like that. There's been a lot done to protect victims of domestic violence. Uh, but we owe it all as a, it's just part of being, you know, human. That to not tolerate, my, my daddy always told me, he said, son, you know, there's no excuse anybody mistreating somebody just because that they can and they can get away with it. Even, even down to a, to a, my grandfather used to say, dumb brutes and animals, you know, there's some things you just don't do. And, you know, there are some things that no matter what the ramifications were or are, you need to have the, the strength and the stamp, the, strength stand up and say this is wrong and I ain't gonna stand for it and uh and to a degree we've we've done that we've we've with like I said the protections that we now have for against uh for victims of domestic violence but there's still so much more to be done and uh you know we're just very fortunate in this country to have a by and large a, a kind and compassionate society and, uh, but it, you also need to have be kind, compassionate, and strong and do the right things, you know, and stand up for the right thing. I hope in this case we were able to at least go forward to right a tremendous wrong. You know, if she'd have had the protections that we have today, maybe she'd have got to see her grandchildren. Maybe she'd have got to see her kids graduate high school. A lot of other things. But uh, wasn't allowed to, you know, if not here, but surely in the hereafter, somebody's responsible. Yes, absolutely. Clay, over the past few months, we've spoken many times over the phone, and we've talked about this book, but we also spent time talking about other subjects as well. Um, you even, like, turned me on to my favorite hot sauces now. Um, I love those hot sauces you've let me know about. Um, you don't slow down, man. Um, you don't even let hip surgery slow you down. And you know, it's an honor to work with you on this book, and it's a greater honor to know you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank you, the audience, for listening. Remember, you can meet Clay again in person at Pretty Good Books in LaGrange, Georgia, on August 7th at 1 p.m., Horton's Books in Carrollton, Georgia on Saturday, August 14th, also at 1 p.m. Hummingbird Book Festival, you can see Clay on two days, August, excuse me, October 16th and October 17th in Hogansville, Georgia. 
As always, I want to say thanks to Jay and Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can find them by searching them out on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Jonathan Foster, and I will talk with you next time.